Welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. It is our intention to continue offering these audio recordings free of charge. However, if you would like to donate to support our cause and keeping our facility open in Nashville, you can do so via the Venmo app by sending a donation to at Wild Heart Nashville, or you can find us online at our website, wildheartmeditationcenter.org, and click the Donate tab. So maybe the invitation for tonight's Dharma talk is to uh, is to listen and not to listen to me, <laughs> but just to listen inside. The search for a spiritual path is born out of suffering. It does not start with lights and ecstasy, but with the hard tracks of pain, disappointment, and confusion. However, for suffering to give birth to a genuine spiritual search, it must amount to more than something passively received from without. It has to trigger an inner realization a perception which pierces through the facile complacency of our usual encounter with the world to glimpse the insecurity perpetually gaping underfoot. When this insight dawns, even if only momentarily, it can precipitate a profound personal crisis. It overturns accustomed goals and values, mocks our routine preoccupations, leaves old enjoyments stubbornly unsatisfying. At first, such changes generally are not welcome. We try to deny our vision and to smother our doubts. We struggle to drive away the discontent with new pursuits, but the flame of inquiry once lit continues to burn, and if we do not let ourselves be swept away by superficial readjustments, or slouch back into a patched-up version of our natural optimism, eventually the original glimmering of insight will again flare up, again confront us with our essential plight. It is precisely at that point, with all escape routes blocked, that we are ready to seek a way to bring our disquietude to an end. No longer can we continue to drift complacently through life, driven blindly by our hunger and by the pressure of prevailing social norms. A deeper reality beckons us. We have heard the call of a more stable, more authentic happiness. And until we arrive at our destination, we cannot rest content. realized today during the compassion sit that it was almost exactly nine years ago that I fell into this path. It's mid-October 2011. And a lot came up for me when I had that realization. 
There's something about the heart that is not linear. The heart that knows pain knows all of our pain. And the heart that knows joy knows all of our joy. And I started reflecting on that, the pain that I felt when I fell into the path. And the best way I could articulate it is I remember just how unbelievably lonely I felt. I woke up each day and did my absolute best to be a good person. I was sober. I was honest. I didn't steal. I did my best to not cause harm to anyone. And I can confidently say I was a good person. And I couldn't figure out why I felt so bad. And why I felt so unbelievably alone. This was the unsolvable math problem in my head. I remember at some point in the first couple Dharma talks I ever went to, my teacher Dave Smith was talking about the first noble truth. It's one of the favorite topics in our Sangha. (laughs) And he said what Dave always says. He says, have you realized just how hard it is to be human? And to my memory, he had said that right before the discussion portion. And so I remember speaking up and saying something like, you mean to tell me that what I'm feeling is normal? (laughs) And he said, yeah. And I said, it sucks. (laughs) And he said, yeah. It sucks. And I said, and you're telling me that this is what the Buddha says, that this is how it is? And he said, yeah, this is how it is. And I said, that really sucks. (laughs) And he said, yeah, it really sucks. And I think what I meant, and it's funny to me because Dave and I still have an exchange around, we both share this memory because it was so powerful. It was so powerful for me and and there was a connection in the Dharma together in that moment. And I think why it was so powerful is because what I really meant is I meant, you mean to tell me that what I'm feeling is not my fault? You mean to tell me that I'm allowed to be in this much pain? You mean to tell me that there's nothing wrong with me? There's a Dharma teacher who I love named Pablo Das, and I used to sit retreat with him. And he would wear this shirt that says, nothing's wrong with you. (laughs) You see, the problem that I couldn't see at the time is that I felt like something was wrong with me. 
Bhikkhu Bodhi says, it's precisely at that point, with all escape routes blocked, that we are ready to seek a way to bring our disquietude to an end. And I was ready. I was ready for something. In the Pali Canon, the word for faith is sada. And sada is an interesting word because it doesn't mean faith as we think of it in the West. It's more along the lines of trust or confidence. And it was the normalization of suffering that I experienced early on in my practice that gave me trust in this path. It made me trust the Dharma. And I think when the Buddha said that inherent in life is suffering, I don't think he was making a proclamation about the general sense of suffering in the world. I just don't see it. I don't think that's how he taught. I think that what he was saying is, if you're suffering, that's okay. If you're in pain, that's okay. If it's hard for you, if your heart is broken, that's okay. That's what it's like. And there's nothing wrong with you. Mikey quoted the Bodhisattva, Mr. Rogers, earlier today, so I thought I'd (laughs) bring him back in. He said, anything that's human is mentionable. And anything that is mentionable can become more manageable. I think this is the gift of the first noble truth, is that if we can make our suffering mentionable, it can become more manageable. It was also interesting to learn a few years into my practice that the Buddha didn't really teach these capital T truths. It took me a while, Mikey and I were joking about this the other day, to actually read the sutta. And a few years into the practice, I looked at it and I was blown away that the Buddha really asks us to practice the first noble truth as a task. And his encouragement is dukkha perinya to fully know dukkha, to embrace, and to be honest about the ways that we suffer, that we struggle. So I got my answer why I was suffering. Because, as Dave said, this is just how it is. And after I figure out why, My next question comes up, well, what do I do about it? And so I jumped into the Dharma. And I don't say this as an egoic pat on the back, but Dave's told me he's never seen someone take to the Dharma as fast as I did. Mm -hmm. Because I was eager to find a way to bring my disquietude to an end. I went every week. When he started twice a week, I went twice a week. 
When he told me to go sit a retreat, I sat a retreat that same year. And I never looked back. And over the course of those first six months, I learned about the Buddha's Eightfold Path. I learned about what I do about it. I learned about sila, one of the pillars of the Eightfold Path, which is sometimes translated as ethics, but I like to just call it a commitment to live with integrity. I learned that in order to have wisdom and compassion arise in my mind and over to in order to overcome suffering, I needed to make a pretty strong commitment to live in line with my integrity every day. The second pillar of the Eightfold Path, Samadhi. Now we're used to thinking of Samadhi as concentration or this particular type of meditation, but it really just means a collectedness of mind, an ability to steady the mind enough for clear seeing to arise. So this is the training in meditation, the inner cultivation of the heart and the mind. I learned about the third pillar, panya, wisdom. And I realized that there's a wisdom that I came in with. There was something in me that was ready. And there's a wisdom that I was told we clarify as we continue to walk the path. And one of the first principles I learned in this wisdom category of the Eightfold Path was the principle of karma, the law of the ownership of action. I just like to call it the law of personal responsibility. Whatever you practice, you get better at. And whether we know it or not, we're planting seeds of karma all the time. We're always practicing something. Some of it's volitional, as Mikey talked about, some of it's non-volitional, but action is always at work. Every movement of the mind, every inclination of the mind, every word spoken, every action taken, Whatever we practice, we get better at. It was really nice to see some of this validated in the rational science world because I always call rational science the spirituality of the West. Do we really know what happens in these studies? Did we do the research? No, but we're willing to believe it. And I say that kind of knocking on myself because this was my entry point into Buddhism. I was like, all right, if they can validate some of this shit, I'm down. But we do see that we know that our, our thoughts, right, that they condition behaviors. Our emotions condition thoughts and behaviors. Our behaviors develop into habits and our habits become traits. Here's this cycle of samsara that the Buddha talked about playing out, not over multiple lifetimes, but just in our habit patterns, our thoughts, condition, behaviors, our behaviors condition habits, our habits condition traits. The power of the Buddhist path lies in our ability to consciously choose 
to interrupt this behavior chain. We practice renouncing what's unskillful. We practice cultivating what's skillful. It's this real simple relationship between cause and effect. You plant a seed, you take care of it, it grows fruit. My teacher Dave used to tell me, if you don't want that to happen to you anymore, stop tending to it. He used to always tell me, let it die on the vine. Let it die on the vine. Sometimes I say that when I notice these reactive patterns coming up. I'll just tell myself, Andrew, let it die on the vine. (laughs) So tonight I want to talk about planting these seeds, these seeds of awakening. I want to talk about some of the themes of awakening. You know, even in the the Buddhist text and some of the scholar texts on awakening and nirvana, no one can quite say what it is, but they can describe themes. And so I find like that's the best way to kind of get in the water with this word awakening. What are some of the themes? The first theme I'm going to start out with is a little bit strong. I think that liberation is inevitable. Whatever we practice, we get better at. If we practice cultivating wisdom and compassion, the only natural result of that is that we're going to grow wisdom and compassion. And if we're on a path that is constantly reminding us to be in our wisdom and compassion, we're going to grow wisdom and compassion. You know, the one thing that I love about the human animals, we're very influenced by the environment that we're in. And this is why I think the Buddha really encouraged us to find the Sangha. And the reason why he says that good friendship is the antidote to all the hindrances. He has this list of anti-hindrances, and they're all different for each hindrance, but the one thing that's congruent amongst all of them is suitable conversation and good friendship. So if we're surrounding ourselves in an environment of Dharma, the Dharma's going to grow. Bhikkhu Bodhi says, liberation is the inevitable fruit of the path and is bound to blossom forth when there's steady and persistent practice. The only requisites for reaching the final goal are two, to start and to continue. So if we get the D minus that Mikey talked about today, like, that's all right. You know, if you're just sucking at this retreat, that's all right. Of course, there's no way to really suck at a retreat. (laughs) Finally, okay. You know, the only requisites are two, to start and to continue. And I've heard it said it's good to add a third, to know that you're going in the right direction. If you would ask me nine years ago if I believed that liberation was the inevitable fruit of the path, I probably first would have said, I don't know what that means. (laughs) 
if you would have asked me if I believed in Buddha nature, I probably would have said, I don't know what that means. Right? That the organic desire of our heart and our mind is to be free. Is to long for safety. Happiness, freedom. I think I wouldn't have believed it too because I was so caught up in survival and I was so identified with all my shortcomings. And I thought that I was my shortcomings. I was so identified with all of my neuroses, all of my fear and pain, resentments. Buddhism would tell us that while we're responsible for our shortcomings, that they're nothing more than habits of survival, deeply ingrained and programmed into the heart-mind. And Buddhism would call this sankara, it's the programs, the habits, the shortcomings. So this first theme, liberation is inevitable, and the only requisites on the path are to start and to continue and to go in the right direction. So we start to walk on the path. And as we're walking on the path, I think it's important to remember that the the path to awakening is gradual. You know, in a world of instant gratification, it's really hard. In a world of constant feedback and some type of certainty that I'm, I'm going in the right direction, It's really hard to sit with the doubt and the uncertainty that we are talking about today. I found the quote of the sutta that I read on the first night. It's called The Ocean. The Buddha says, Just as the great ocean gradually shelves, slopes, and inclines, and there's no sudden precipice, so also in this dhamma and this discipline, there's a gradual training, a gradual course, a gradual progression. And there's no sudden penetration into final knowledge. You know, I I remember sitting on retreat and just waiting for when it was going to (laughs) come. It's like I've definitely stared at my breath long enough for something (laughs) to happen. And then the frustration, and then the frustration, and then the compassion talk, (laughs) and then more frustration, (laughs) and then someone saying, open, open, soften, embrace, and then I laid the sword down, and I felt what that was like. To just relax into the, it's like the Dharma had my back, you know, all I had to do was just let the guard down to stop trying so hard to get somewhere else. And so someone asked tonight on the, the board to explain freedom from suffering. And I thought the Buddha would do it a little bit better than I did, so. And this gradual path to awaken to find freedom from suffering, what is that? And 
You know, the Buddha chose to use this really weird word for awakening. It's Nibbana. Sanskrit Nirvana. Probably heard the band. Nibbana is a Pali cooking term. And it means to bring a boiling pot to rest. So it literally means to cool down. The cooling down of reactivity. It's the cooling down of greed, hatred, and delusion. It's a slow burn. It's a simmering. And so freedom from suffering just means the cooling down of reactivity, the cooling down of greed, hatred, and delusion, of this unnecessary extra layer of suffering that's already on top of what's already making our lives difficult. You know, I went through the breakup. That's not hard enough. Let's just make it my fault and make a story out of why I'm never going to be with anyone again. <laughs> that's the type, that's the suffering, the heartbreak of separation. That's the, the Buddha calls that dukkha dukkha. That's just, we're going to live with that, you know? The Buddha even died from uh, food poisoning. You know, we're not getting out of that one, even if you're an arhat. The Buddha had back pain. You know what I mean? Like Mara came and continued to visit the Buddha and he would just say, I see you, Mara. The only difference between the Buddha's previous life and after his enlightenment is Mara couldn't trick him any longer. He would have this awareness, like we are practicing today, this simple awareness, this noting, aversion, Mara. Clinging, Mara. Craving, Mara. Self, Mara. So this is what we mean by freedom from suffering. We mean the cooling down of reactivity, and this is a gradual path. You know, it's like the Pali canon is so repetitive, right? It's like you probably heard a few of these quotes that I'm, I'm sharing here tonight if you've ever sat in our groups at Wild Heart. You know, because this isn't an intellectual exercise. It's like we got to repeat over and over and over. We've got to commit back to the present experience, to the experiential wisdom of right now it's like this. And we've got to see for ourselves. We've got to really look clearly into the mind, into the body, in the moment. Portia Nelson has a poem of sorts about breaking these habits of reactivity and what it takes. I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. But it takes forever to find a way out. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it's there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It's not my fault. 
I get out immediately. <laughs> walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. I walk down another street. I love this because this is how it is for me, you know, coming up against the same thing. You ever feel like you're just right back in the same place, the same habit? Our habits are strong. You know, this is why when the Buddha woke up, when he had his awakening experience, he's like, I don't think I'm going to teach this shit to anyone. <laughs> you know, he literally was like, Brahm, I had to come on his shoulder and convince him. You know? Brahma's like, yeah, there will be some people with a little bit of dust in their eyes that are ready to change these habits. And out of compassion, you should teach for them. I said, all right. He said, it will be tired and tiring and vexing for me. The Buddha complained. <laughs> I'm grateful for that too when I'm teaching a retreat and I'm like, oh yeah. <laughs> the Buddha thought it was a pain in the ass sometimes too. <laughs> Not y'all, but. <laughs> so where do we start? We start with the present moment, the present experience. Awakening is immediate and available every moment. This is the greatest gift. It's always available. In Zen Buddhism, they have a phrase, sudden awakening, gradual cultivation, which I've been really into lately. And we've all had many awakenings out throughout the course of our lives. We've all had many moments of clarity. On this retreat, we've had some insights. I've even heard some people share about how they wish they could hold on to the insights. You know, we have the insight. Something in our heart resonates and says, oh, this is truth. And it leaves kind of like an impression on the heart. But the insight slips our mind. We forget. We go about our lives and the world kind of comes on top of it. But the heart still knows somewhere in there that it had that insight. There's this moment of sudden awakening, but then we've got to keep continuing to cultivate the same insight. Wouldn't it be so nice if I could say, all right, y'all, three marks of existence. Impermanent, imperfect, impersonal. We're done. <laughs> You know, we have these insights. Oh, yeah. There's that, that leaning in, you know, the bull ice cream or the, damn, I was eating those wasabi peas yet last night. You know, like, just wanting it to last. And then I got the chocolate-covered coffee bean, not my thing. I thought it was a wasabi pea. <laughs> you know, and all of a sudden I'm like, Damn, there it is again. <laughs> impermanent, imperfect, impersonal. <laughs> Sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. In Japanese Zen, this is called Kensho. Seeing, nature, essence. It's an initial insight or awakening which requires further development. So it's immediate and available, and awakening is a behavior. The good news is that we don't have to believe it. We don't have to understand it. We just have to do it. And if we wonder where to start, be kind. You know, be generous. That's where the Buddha started. He's like, just be generous. 
I've never felt better quicker than doing service for someone else. It's like the heroin of ethical acts. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, heroin's a little bit better, don't get me wrong, but don't go out and try it. It doesn't end well. Not this path. But uh, I've never felt better quicker. You know, awakening's a behavior, and so we can start by holding the door, you know, by taking someone's food, you know, by uh, answering the phone or calling a friend. You know these people that you have in your life called friends that you maybe remember nine months ago before <laughs> pandemic? <laughs> Call some of them up and check in on them, you know, because we, we have these friends that are like our close friends. We've probably been talking to them, but some of those other friends... You know, give them a ring when you get out of here. Not tonight. How's it going? How are you doing? God, I don't know why that's so hard, but just even calling someone and saying, how are you doing? Tell me about your life. And then listening. I don't know about y'all. I'm not that good at that. I listen to people all day. But with my friends, it's like, I don't want to hear about your shit. (laughs) So awakening is behavior, and it's these simple things. I blame Roy for getting me into some deep Zen stuff lately, but they talk about this kind of ordinariness of awakening through these ordinary expressions of life. You know, like work, work meditation. Work is a big part of this. I was reading uh, this book that was lent to me, and they had instructions for how the cook on the Zen retreat should practice. You know, like this whole thing, like I think it was long, this whole like long instruction for how the cook should practice. And this is, I love this because this is waking up in the world. You know, like this is the world we're going back into. Awakening is a behavior. And what you've done this weekend is all of these moments, all of these moments, cultivating all of these moments of awakening. It's a beautiful thing. It's a special thing. So I want to read something that I share with our Sangha every year. I try to only read it once a year. We kind of keep it for the special New Year's Eve intention-setting ceremony. But I want to um, just invite you to, to listen. Let it wash over you. It's called The Invitation by Uriah Mountain Dreamer. I don't care what you do for a living. I want to know what you ache for. And if you dare to dream of meeting your heart's longing. I don't care how old you are. I want to know if you will risk looking like a fool for love, for your dream, for the adventure of being alive. I don't care what planets are circling your moon. I want to know if you have touched the center of your own sorrow, if you have been opened by life's betrayals or become shriveled and closed from fear of further pain. I want to know if you can sit with pain, mine or your own, without moving to hide it or fade it or fix it. I want to know if you can be with joy, mine 
or your own. If you can be realistic and remember the limitations of being human. I don't care if the story you're telling me is true. I want to know if you can disappoint another to be true to yourself. If you can bear the accusation of betrayal and not betray your own soul. If you can be faithless and therefore trustworthy. I want to know if you can see beauty even when it's not pretty every day. And if you can source your own life from its presence. I want to know if you can live with failure, yours and mine. I don't care where you live or how much money you have. I want to know if you can get up after the night of grief and despair, weary and bruised to the bone, and do what needs to be done. I don't care who you know or how you came to be here. I want to know if you will stand in the center of the fire with me and not shrink back. I don't care where or with whom you've studied. I want to know what sustains you from the inside when all else falls away. I want to know if you can be alone with yourself and if you truly like the company you keep in the empty silent moments.